Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Ian Stewart, who is a mastering engineer and audio educator out of Massachusetts, where he owns and operates Flowtown Mastering. And today's conversation is really fun. Ian is definitely really well informed when it comes to understanding some of the more technical aspects of the production process. And specifically, because he's a mastering engineer, there's a lot of mastering stuff that he obviously really understands really well. And in this interview, we get into some deeper conversations around some of the technology, some of the so-called rules of audio. And we also talk a lot about some things that on the surface are some foundational audio principles, but a lot of people don't fully understand their importance. And some of the stuff we're going to talk about here today as it relates to things like sample rates and bit depths and using things like dither. These are things that you may or may not have really paid attention to within your DAW, but when you actually understand what they do and why you should use certain settings, it can really improve the quality of your recording. So you definitely want to pay attention to this, and I think Ian does a really great job of explaining clearly what these features are and you know why you want to use certain sample rates and bit depths and what their benefits are and what the different applications are for these various tools. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of great stuff to learn here. And we also get into the topic of low-end, because when you listen to Ian's masters, Ian does a really great job of creating masters that feel really big, really full, really boomy, but not in a way that they sound muddy at all. You know, They're very controlled. And so Ian uses some very specific tools, and one of which he actually has created as a plugin. So we get into all that stuff in this interview. I think you're going to find this really helpful, and you're going to learn a lot of really useful stuff in here. So let's just jump right into the interview. Ian Stewart, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, man. I'm excited to have you. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us that background on who you are, what you do, and how you ultimately got into all the stuff you're working on these days. Yeah, so I am a mastering engineer. I'm an audio educator. I write for the Isotope blog. Uh, I do some technical editing for them on some of the kind of more technical articles. Um, I, I wear a lot of different hats. I kind of was gotten involved with plugin development recently. Um, uh, I play trumpet still. I, I play with a, a hip-hop group um, from time to time. Uh, so, yeah, kind of all things musical um backstory is you know very similar to probably the one you've heard before a million times but um grew up playing music i started i started by playing cello i think i started cello in like second grade or something first or second grade played to like fourth grade kind of took a break found my dad's old trumpet in a cupboard one day like over the summer between 5th and 6th grade and and he had played um, bunch of bands he played on in like the Man of La Mancha Roadshow and uh, Don Ellis's rehearsal band. Who Don Ellis? He's, most people probably don't know um, who Don Ellis was, but wild uh, jazz trumpeter from like the '60s and '70s, doing some really far out electrified trumpet stuff. Crazy time signatures. Check out his music for sure. Um, anyway, 
Uh, so I f- found my dad's trumpet, kind of started messing around, and was like, hey, I think I want to take lessons. So he went out, got me a trumpet, started taking trumpet lessons. Um, kind of my first taste of like the tech side of things, I think probably was a summer camp I went to, and they had this teeny little recording studio. And most campers would, you know, you'd go sign up for a time slot and you'd go in, you'd record your song and you'd leave. And like at the end of the session, the counselors would give you a CD with, with your song on it. And they, they do all the mixing and everything in the background. Like the, the campers really didn't get involved with that. But I was like, Hey, hold on. What, like what's on the other side of the glass? What are you guys doing in there? Um, and would kind of hang out and watch the mix stuff. And and at the end of the summer, one of them was like, all right, here's, here's your homework over, you know, over the next school year, like figure out the difference between, he said, figure out the difference between a phaser and a flanger. And if you can come back and tell me next year, you can hang out in here and like work on mixing stuff with us. Well, I went home and I figured it out and I came back the next summer and I got to do some mixing and recording and tracking with, with them. Yeah. Like my, at some point my, in high school, my dad got like a old Roland XP 50 workstation keyboard that you could like, you know, program loops and layer loops and stuff on, start playing around with that. And like my mom got me one of the old Fostex Porta Studio, you know, four track, you know, put a cassette tape in, you've got four tracks. Um, so I would like record stuff off of the, the XP 50 and then have two more tracks. I could do trumpet stuff on and, um, so, like, at that point, I was still kind of very much, I guess, in, uh, on the creative side of it. Like, I was like, how can I, how can I use this to do creative, uh, you know, music making? And went to a high school that had a really great jazz program. Then went to the University of Miami, again, because of the jazz program. So I was like, I was kind of full bore down the music lane. And um, about... A year and a half in, I guess. I think it was yeah, somewhere somewhere during my sophomore year, uh, the the head of the jazz program, who was one of my professors, in a slightly blunt way, but a way that ultimately was well intentioned, said, "Are you sure you're in the right program?" As if I'd you know maybe been wandering into the wrong classes for three semesters, <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of went, "Uh, what?" Um, but one of the cool things about the music school at Miami was the audio engineering program was right in the same campus, right? So there are all these kind of like different, the the university is huge, but there are all these different kind of schools that are kind of grouped and clustered together. Um, And so I was around a lot of the audio engineering students and, you know, would get to see what they were working on and had gotten to go into the studio a little bit and was kind of scratching that, that itch that, you know, I had that was the kind of technical side of things. And so I said, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I should think about that. And I went to the head of the audio engineering program who at the time was Ken Pullman, um, which may name may not mean much to most people, but if you go out and you look for like the textbook on digital audio, it's by Ken Pullman. So he like, he wrote this book is called principles, digital audio it's you know like three inches four inches thick it is massive all dense technical information so he was the head of the program and that's the kind of program it was it wasn't just go into the studio and record it was like heavy duty tech right like really understanding the science behind the stuff 
And I said, hey, Ken, uh, you know, I'm in the studio music and jazz program. It feels like maybe it's not a great fit. Any chance I could transfer into the audio engineering program? And he said, well, um, and they, they only accepted like 15 or 20 students a year into that program. So it was pretty competitive to come in. And here I was, you know, a year and a half later saying I want to transfer. I said, well, it's, it's a pretty, you know, math and science-based program. Go take... Uh, you know, intro to electrical engineering, intro to computer science, you know, basic C++, uh, and a physics course. Take those three next semester. We'll see how you do. If you do well enough, I'll let you into the program. So now I was technically out of the jazz program. <laughs> I wasn't yet into the audio engineering program, and I had a semester to be like, all right, I, I got it. It's sink or swim. Um, and so I went, and I took those three classes, and I still had to do, you know, my regular kind of music classes at the same time to keep up with that part of the curriculum. And I think I got straight A's that semester and went back to me and said, all right, come on over. <laughs> Amazing. I was really hoping that it was going to come full circle and he was going to say, if you know the difference between a phaser and a flanger, yeah. you're like, <laughs> <laughs> That would have been too good. <laughs> well, Ken, let me tell you. Um, but yeah, so... Transferred in to that program, had to do one extra semester just to cram it all in. But I mean, that that program, again, it was like, you know, it's principles of digital audio, transducer theory, uh, architectural acoustics, DSP stuff, you know. And yes, there was the studio time going in and recording and mixing and, and doing all that. But that was kind of only a small slice of it. So that that's really kind of what the planted the seed for me of, you know, kind of having a very technical approach, um, which I think is why ultimately I've, I've gravitated towards mastering, maybe. Because for me, one of the beautiful things about mastering is it, it, it is kind of um, both, both that left brain, right brain thing, right? Like on the one hand, yeah, it's your final kind of chance to get a little creative and, and meld things in the right way and sculpt a frequency balance and you know, kind of enhance groove and punch and, and all that stuff. Um, but it is also a very technical discipline, at least the way I approach it in that, you know, yeah, you've got specs that it's obviously it's not like it once was right. Like if you're, if you're cutting to, to vinyl, to a lacquer, there are some things that you got to get right, or you're going to blow up your, your cutter head or, you know, whatever or the, the vinyls just not going to play right. It's going to skip all the time, throw the needles out of the groove or, you know, whatever, um, but even even these days, you know, with with everything that's going on with streaming, there's a lot of technical stuff to kind of be aware of, um, and so just kind of having that be part of it as well as well is for me works really well because I can be creative and I can be technical, and it it kind of yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, but it's so true. Yeah, yeah. The way I kind of got ended up getting into mastering was for a while I was producing and DJing again, kind of staying on that creative path put together an album of my own music and was like, well, I know there's this mastering thing. I don't really know much about it at this point. I guess I better figure sort of out, you know, what it is, master my album before I put it out. Um, did that. Friends heard it. Hey, who mastered that? Oh, I did. Oh, cool. Can you master mine? And it, from there, it's just word of mouth. I was going to say, I think that's how a lot of people get into mastering. It's like, it's kind of, you get into it by mistake and then someone's like, oh, you're really good at it. You should, can you help me? And then it just kind of circles right. from there, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's also interesting, too, because you were talking about how, like, the streaming services have that kind of, um, you know, like, spec-based thing. And 
to them and and how that's that's something that I mean, even that is really interesting because there is a lot of like technically technical ways to do things and like you know if you want to follow the book on a lot of these these different streaming apps like they have all their suggestions and everything but a lot of it is just kind of suggestions in some ways too right like there's their standards that they want you to aim for but like nobody's hitting it and they still make it work <laughs> exactly and and that well so that's that's i think to me the the key differentiation right it's is that they have standards they have loudness normalization um you know distribution levels reference levels that they use I really stay away from the word target. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't like that word because a target is something that you aim for. And none of these distribution levels or reference levels, no one, I mean, well, okay. Spotify maybe kind of says, hey, it's going to be this and you should be in this ballpark. I'm sorry, but Spotify, you're wrong. Um, right. And no one's, no one's doing that. And frankly, people that are often have either clients that come back to them and say, Hold on, this does this isn't sounding right. But the the important thing for me there is understanding what this what the different streaming platforms are doing, and at the very least auditioning your final masters at those levels, mm-hmm. right? So you can see like, okay, I I might master a song to whatever negative ten LUFS negative eight whatever wherever it ends up. But then, okay, let me turn it down to negative 14 and play it next to stuff that's normalized to that level. And how does it sound now? Because, yeah, theoretically, all the loudness normalization stuff is is meant to make things sound equally loud. But it's imperfect, right? It doesn't always work. Um, and it's so dependent on arrangement and mix and uh, instrumentation and all of that that yeah, until you do it and actually listen to it, you're kind of not going to know for sure. So it's it's just, you know, that for me these days, the technical part of it is staying on top of that, understanding what the different platforms are using, how wide that range is, right? For a while, it was a lot wider. Now it's kind of, it is narrowing into that negative 14 LUFS range. Apple's a little bit lower. God, we could, we could talk about the whole Atmos thing. That's a whole <laughs> separate can of worms. But just understanding that and and kind of knowing what the parameters are and what's going to happen to that music if loudness normalization is turned on and also if it's turned off, right? Like, where are you going to be for... It's a small percentage of of users that listen with it off, but they're out there. So what's going to happen when the music is played with with normalization turned off? So, yeah, it's it's different than it used to be. Again, we're seeing more and more lossless services, which means you kind of, you know, for a while it was like, okay... If this is playing back via a lossy codec, what does that do? You know, like I don't want to sacrifice the the sound of the music just to tailor to a lossy codec. But are there things that I can do to mitigate how bad that codec's going to sound? Mm-hmm. Right. And now that it seems like the majority of platforms are moving to lossless, like my my philosophy has kind of become: if someone's happy to listen to a lossy stream, then they probably don't care. That like they they just want some music on. They're not listening yeah. to it for ultimate fidelity, right? So I'm, I kind of let go of that, which is nice. That's the thing that I find most interesting about it is that like I think as engineers, we sometimes do get so caught up in like the technically correct way to do things, and we hear all these suggestions like oh it should be minus fourteen LUFS and blah blah blah, and it's like we're kind of told like it should be this way, but then all, 
at the end of the day, nobody listens. Most, well, most people listening don't care about any of this stuff. They don't even know what's happening behind the scenes. So it's like it's like you said, like people just want to listen to music and they want to enjoy it. And whatever level they hear it out of their speakers, they're probably happy with it. Yeah, right. maybe maybe if like songs were like, you know, not normal and and you had something that was super quiet, super loud, then maybe people get a little pissed off about that at some point. But but it's been happening. I mean, we hear it in TV commercials all the time. We've been hearing it in music for the longest time. Like we're we're kind of just. When you're just in the moment enjoying your entertainment, you kind of don't really care. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And that's like that at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, right? It's like make it sound good. Just make it sound good. It's that simple. And like for some some songs, maybe you can push them louder and still have them sound good. And for others, like just again, it's it's so much of this goes, you know, it's a lot of people, you know, view mastering as this magic bullet that's gonna make their, you know, mix super loud or whatever. So much of it. It's not even the mix, it's the arrangement. It's sound choices, it's, you know, instrumentation, and then, yeah, how that mix is is then blended and, and put together. Um, but there's certain songs that, yeah, like, you try and push it as far as, you know, one song you could maybe, you could, I, I mean, I'll just say, for the record, up front, I'm not a fan of pushing stuff super, super loud. I I like my drums punchy and to hit. And when you push stuff loud, that's kind of the first thing to go. Your drums just get a little quieter and, you know, in the mix and and don't hit quite as hard. Um, So, but that said, I'm not, I'm not delivering at negative 14. Like that's, (laughs) that's going a little too far for me. Um, But yeah, there'll be some songs that you could push to negative six, negative five. And, you know, Sure, the drums are going to get squished, but it won't really be distorting too much. And others, you know, to get past negative eight without distortion, you're going to, it's going to be an uphill battle. And again, that's just so much of that is is predicated on production, arrangement, sound selection, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, make it sound good. Get it, you know, to the right level for that song, whatever that means. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Maybe it means negative six, maybe, maybe it means negative 12. You know, who knows? And like you said, you know, most people are listening with normalization turned on. They don't even know it's there, so they don't know to go there to turn it off. It's enabled by default most of the time these days. And really, the the reason loudness normalization was even implemented in the first place was exactly that, that people, it wouldn't be on, and you would have these, you know, people started listening to playlists, right, more than albums, and the levels would be all over. You get one thing that's mastered super hot and one that's really dynamic. And now people like every song, they're reaching for their volume control and it's getting annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as long as you make it sound good and you kind of understand, again, how it's going to live and play in that normalized playback world, good to go, my yeah. book. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think that's, that is that is the big philosophy overall with mastering. It's like, it can't leave your studio sounding crappy. That's, that's, right. that's for sure. Right. <laughs> for right. sure. So then I'd love to talk a little bit about your process. Like when it, when it comes to starting a new project then, obviously you want it to sound good, right? Like we just talked about here, but what's, but what's your mindset going into a new project? Like how do you start? Where do you start? What are you kind of listening for right off the bat? You know, what's, what's that typical process look like for you? Yeah. So, um, this it's so so this for me actually goes back to to when I was producing more in a way. Um, one of the things that that I guess kind of almost frustrated me about producing and mixing and making my own music is that you never have that experience of hearing something for the first time. 
right? Because it, you're hearing it grow and build and be incremental and whatever. And so something that was always really rewarding for me was to be able to get to put on my music for someone that had never heard it before and almost sort of vicariously hear it for the first time through them. I would be willing to bet that, I mean, I'm almost sure you've had this happen. Probably a lot of your listeners have, right? You work on a mix and if you invite someone in to listen to it with you and give you some feedback or whatever, all of a sudden you start hearing things that you've never noticed before. And it's just like the, just by virtue of the fact that you've got someone else in the room listening with you, somehow that flips a switch in your head and you start hearing things differently, but it's still not quite the same as just really hearing something for the first time. So again, that's one of the things that I love about mastering is I can truly hear something pretty close to its final form, right? It's finished version for the very first time. And the other side of that is I get that precisely once, right? After that first listen, that's gone. And really, a lot of times after the first 30 seconds, your ears are starting to normalize to the frequency balance and all that stuff. So that, that's the moment that's super important to me. So anytime, uh, basically the process for me is I'm going to go, I'm going to set up the session. I, I'm a WaveLab user, so I'm going to set it up in WaveLab. I'm going to import everything. I'm going to get... You know, if there's a, hopefully there's a, there's a sequence of, of songs, if it's an EP or an album, right? If, if it's a single, whatever, don't worry about it. Um, get those roughly sequenced out. I have, um, WaveLab has something called a, the meta normalizer, um, which can do loudness normalization, but in a very, it's, you can get like very granular with how, what parameters you want it to look at. So I have a preset there that basically gain stages. Gain stages everything, so it's going to work well with my analog chain. So I run everything through that, so it's kind of all in the same level ballpark. So I get all that stuff set up, and usually I'm going to try and do that at the end of a day, right? So I'm going to try and do a lot of the creative or more important stuff earlier in the day while my ears are fresh. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to do some email. I'm going to get sessions for the next day set up. Um, so I'll have all that get ready to go. I'm not going to listen to anything. And one of the things in WaveLab that, that I have is there's a, a notes panel. And so there's some kind of like session bookkeeping stuff that I keep in there. So my monitor gain, um, you know, I listened to a few of, the, few of your other guests. I know Mike Lagin was talking about this, how he hasn't like touched his monitor gain in years. I, I'm basically in the, I'll, I'll move mine, but I have, it's, a, it's digitally controlled analog gain. So I, I can get exactly back to to where I was, right? So I have certain gain settings that I know um, are going to work well depending on what I'm working on. If I'm working on a mix, which I don't even remember the last time I did that, but I need more headroom, I'm going to turn my gain up, but I'm going to get the same loudness, same loudness out of the speakers. Yeah, makes sense. Right. So, um, so I'm going to write down my monitor gain, stuff like that. And then I also have what I what I call like my my listening notes and basically just bullet points. So then the next morning when I'm fresh, I'm going to come in, I'm going to sit down, get in a good headspace. I might listen to some other stuff like reference material first that I just know is like stuff that I love the sound of again, just to kind of like normalize my ears a little bit. Um, and then I'm going to hit play and I'm going to resist any temptation to start throwing plugins on or, twisting knobs or whatever. And I'm just going to write down notes 
I'm going to say, okay, wow, this, this, you know, the kick is actually, it feels a little like overly punchy. We kind of need to tame that. Or, um, there's, you know, this one bass note that's really ringing out or, hmm, things sound a little bit boxy in this section, or there's a weird level jump that happens here or whatever it is. Any, anything that just like, as soon as the thought pops into my head, I'm going to jot it down. Um, because again, um, I think actually this was something that that Mike talked about too, how like, you know, you could make something, put a high shelf on something, you turn it up a dB, half a dB, you know, every 10 minutes. And after an hour, it's like, you know, you've got 10 dB at 10K and you're like, yeah, that sounds normal. <laughs> and you, right, your ears will just like self-recalibrate constantly. So so yeah, just getting those ideas out while they're fresh. And then at that point, you know, once I've done that, um, then I'm going to go through and and start actually tweaking right and usually it's it's you know I'll start with kind of some digital cleanup so just some some plugins on the clip right there might be a little EQ um if there's a reason to do uh, I don't know linear phase stuff I, I might do that first you know just on the clip before it goes out to analog um and then start working it through the chain and record it back in and if it's an album or EP um I might I might take notes on each song first or I might do it just on the first song or whatever the client says maybe this is going to be the lead single off of the album or whatever and then I have that like I get that to a place I'm happy with and I have that now as kind of a reference to go to while I'm listening to the other songs too makes sense right so I I still want to do that first listen and take those notes for each song but I can also say, okay, in the context of the bigger picture of the album, how does that, you know, where is the sitting next to this other song that I've already done? And then it and then it turns into, you know, the the balancing act and chasing your tail that is mastering, right? You tweak Absolutely. one song and then you tweak another, and then you find something that you could do better on the first, so you go back and <laughs> round around you go. But yeah. Absolutely. I love that though. I think, I think that you brought up a really good point there with that first listen and just like you, you mentioned that you like to kind of prepare yourself the night before for the first listen the day after. And I think that's brilliant because yeah, it's so easy to just like a lot of people will just throw a file into their session, hit play just as kind of like as they're futzing around and like setting stuff up. And it's like, every time you do that, you're losing that objectivity. So, you know, why be listening to it while you're doing like mind numbing stuff? Like just like, set it up first and then, you know, be ready for those, for those notes that you can create and actually come up with a real game plan for how to move forward with it. Right. Exactly. And that, and that's a big part of it is that creating those notes that is, that's making your blueprint for like where you want to take this song. Right. And, and, and like also how you're going to know when you're there. I mean, certainly I, I think with experience, you're more easily able to say, oh, I'm, I'm done. This is there. Yeah. Um, but certainly earlier on for, for people, for people that are just getting into it, whether it's mixing or mastering, right? It's very easy to just, you know, when is the mix done? Uh, you know, when, there's, when, when the deadline is passed or, <laughs> you know, when I stop breathing or, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, it's easy to just tweak infinitely. And, and there are infinite ways to make uh, something sound different they're not all necessarily making it sound better. Absolutely. Right. So, so having those, those notes, I mean, it, it does two things for me. One, it tells me like, if I've addressed them all, I'm happy with them. I'm, I'm probably pretty close to there. 
And the other thing is it, it sort of creates like these anchor points in my mind, whereas if I didn't have them, it might be hard for me to, to like, again, once my ears are have just gotten totally used to what I'm hearing and, and kind of lost some of that objectivity, um, it might be hard to, like, remember, like, oh, what was it that I was feeling at first? Mm-hmm. But if I can look at a note that says, oh, the kick drum's doing this weird thing in this f- certain frequency range, like, somehow, for me anyway, it just snaps me right back, and all of a sudden I can hear it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's that thing. And then I can jump back in and, and work on it. I love that. I, I love that you talked about the idea of just having that, like, that benchmark that you have to hit and to know when you're done. Because this is something that I, that I talk a lot with my coaching students is, like, you need to know what you want your project to sound like before you start. Because if you don't, then you're just kind of blindly setting stuff up and hoping that you, that you land on it. And, but, but if you don't know what it's supposed to sound like, then you're not really taking the right steps to get there. You're kind of just like fixing things, hoping that you magically get it in the right ballpark. But whereas if you're actually like preparing for it, you can take the right steps and get there a lot easier. Right. Absolutely. Or just at least get there. Cause sometimes you don't get there at all. If you, if you don't have a plan for it. Right. Exactly. And I, I honestly, I think it's funny. You, I mean, you say that and I look back at like some of my production stuff and I think that's why I have a folder of, you know, God, I don't know how many songs that just never, you know, they're, eight bar 16 bar loops that just never went anywhere mm-hmm. and i i think there's something to be said for the the creative process of just exploring and seeing what you find and what it sounds like and you know i i know there are a lot of producers at least kind of in the electronic world who talk about doing sound design sessions where it is it's just it's playing with a synth and seeing what you can get out of it but not thinking that you're gonna come up with a song on that mm-hmm. day it's just to find the sounds and then once you've found some really cool sounds, you've found some really cool patterns, you've found this really cool chord progression, whatever it may be. Okay, now let's come up with a plan for this thing. And, and how can I use this and turn it into a story? Absolutely. And I think that that's, that works when you kind of um, compartmentalize the different sections of the production process, right? Like I totally get what you're saying. Like when you're, when you're writing, you're in that experimental stage. You're going to try a whole bunch of different things there. And, and or maybe you are like purposely trying to make something that is written to sound like another artist. And if that's the case, then now you have your benchmark there. Right. But like you can write your songs, be experimental there. But then once you get into like that mixing stage and then to me, it's like, that's the mode to just focus on making it sound the way you hear it in your head. Like, and, right. and most of the time, the way you hear it in your head is by com- kind of comparing to existing songs that you already know. And, and like, you know, mo- most people are going to take their mastered files from you afterwards and listen to another album afterwards and be like, Oh, does it sound as good as that? Yes. Okay, right. great. This is good master. Right. You know, exactly. so it's the same idea. Like when you're mixing and mastering, it's, you, you always have to have that idea of what it should sound like before you do it. To, so you can actually hit that. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, yeah, I really like that idea of like having having that uh, that benchmark there and the way you plan out your day. I think I think it's really smart to do it that way. Um, so then you talked about like you kind of normalize your chain so that it's it's ready for your analog gear. Do you have a typical like cha- mastering chain that you usually go with, or what's that normally look like for you? Yeah. So, uh, um, so I have. Uh, I'm I'm gonna turn and try and stay sort of on my mic access. I have uh, three EQs and three compressors. And and they're they're connected to an insert switcher. And the insert switcher has some flexibility in the order that I can do things in, right? So um, I have a uh, Porter Grinder uh, EQ 
I have a Mazalek MLA3 that's a multiband compressor. I have uh, an API 2500, a Buzz DBCM. Those are both compressors. Um, I have a uh, Alicia X-Filter Mastering Edition, which is kind of like sort of Bax and Dolly, but it's got some bell filters in there too. And then I have uh, Giraffe, um, their tube passive, uh, well, it's, it's dual stage, so it can either be solid state or tube output. Um, and so, like, I can flip the the order of the first two, right? So I could have the Porter Grinder EQ into the multiband or the multiband into the EQ. Um, and then the... Elysia X filter can either be very last in the chain or it can be very first. So if I want to do some high pass filtering or whatever before it goes into some of the compression, I can do that at the input or the output. But other than that, the order through there is is pretty much fixed. That said, I'm not going to use every single one of those on every song, right? A lot of times it's a matter of finding the two that work. Maybe just one. Maybe it just needs one EQ, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it just needs a little bit of compression and it's finding the right compressor that has, you know, all those, those three compressors have like very different tonal characters aside from the compression character, right? So it's just finding maybe the right one with the right kind of box tone and it's barely doing compression. Or maybe it is doing a bunch of compression. Who knows, right? So it's not like I'm necessarily using all of them all the time. Sometimes, if that's what the song needs. Um, and then in the digital world, it's it's much less. Like, yeah, I've got my my plugins that I like and go to, you know, more frequently than others. Um, but generally, kind of my my philosophy, my workflow, whatever is. Um, so in WaveLab, you can insert plugins on a clip. So like, rather than have a plugin on a channel. Right, you can just have a plugin on a clip. You can also have stuff on the channel or on groups or on buses or whatever. Um, but usually, you're inserting plugins on the clip, so it's specific to that song. So I might put, you know, you know, a Fab Filter EQ or the Massenberg uh, MDW EQ or just a really clean digital EQ on there first. If there's just some like kind of like very surgical or just general cleanup stuff, stuff that doesn't need a lot of vibe, um, you know, things that I just kind of want to tweak a little bit again before it goes out to analog. And, and so usually I'm doing more of the cleanup stuff in the box first. And then the analog is kind of broad tone shaping, you know, vibey things. Um, and then I record that back in and the, you know, the recording, the the capture might ultimately get some plugins on it too. So I might do, um, and a lot of this comes down, especially on an album, you know, like, you, again, you do that first pass, you get stuff as close as you can, and then you're like, oh, yeah, this one's still a little bit brighter. Okay, so let me just put any, rather than go through and recapture everything. I mean, look, if that's the right thing to do, do it, right? Don't just stack EQs infinitely because you can. <laughs> but sometimes it's, you know, it sounds okay. It works. Um, you know, a little EQ on there, or maybe there's a spatial thing, you know, put some, some spatial enhancement on, you know, just on that capture clip. Um, and then usually all that's kind of, there's, you know, one set of, I'm not going to say one limiter cause often there's a few, um, you know, some clipping, some limiting, some DSing, whatever stuff at the end that kind of everything goes through in common. Um, 
So no one set chain, but yeah, but yeah I do have those those six analog pieces that you know have kind of I guess are part of my if I have a fingerprint part of my fingerprint. Totally, that makes sense. Well, well, I was curious about that too. Like one thing that really does stand out to me when I listen to your masters is that I think you do a really great job of keep of getting mixes to have a lot of low end and sound really beefy and big, but it doesn't sound overwhelming, right? And low, low end's always like that big challenge, right? Like you yeah. can only push it so much before it starts to make things sound really muddy. So I was curious to know, like, what is your secret for that? Like, what, what are you <laughs> what are you doing to make it so big but so polished still? So I think there there. I mean. I don't. I don't know that there are any secrets, and I don't know that there are <laughs> any magic bullets. Right? I will say the Mazalak MLA three uh, was that. I think that might have been the first. Well, maybe I had the API twenty five hundred before that. But anyway, that was like the first. You know, oh my god, I can't believe I just spent this much money. Kind of piece of gear that I got. Um, it's it is an incredible box, and and actually, I think the the first project I did with it. The client came back and was like, yeah, we really like it. Can we just get a little more low end? And I was like, all right, let me just like drive into the bottom band of this thing and like really play around with the attack and release settings and see what it can do and get to know it. Um, and kind of beefed it up and just really tightened up the, the bottom on that and sent it back. And they're like, yep, that's it. <laughs> um, so it definitely helps, but uh, you know, it's not to say that you couldn't do something similar um, with plugins or whatever. But uh, you know, I, I think understanding kind of where multiband compression. I think a lot of times with people with multiband, they get like they're like, "Oh my god, I can do six bands and do all these crazy different settings with each band," and that is more often than not just going to completely make a mess of things. Um, so to me, some of the power of multiband is being able to just use one band and not squash your whole mix, but if you really need to tighten in one area, um, you know, a lot of times with, with the Maselec, I'm, I'm doing the low band, I'm tightening up the bottom, and I'm using the top band almost as a de-esser, just set, like, really fast just to grab some little spiky peaks. And the mid band's doing nothing. Maybe just a tickle, you know, at, at the loudest chorus or something. That's part of it. And then the other thing is more of a philosophical thing, which is that, and this is going to sound weird when I say it, but and it took me a long time to figure this out, but bass isn't about bass, right? So many people, myself included, for the longest time, you think bass is all about, you know, that like, I don't know where you draw the line, but sub 80 hertz, sub 60 hertz, whatever, that's bass. Yeah, that's important. You got to have that right, but it's really easy to overdo that and suddenly swamp everything. And a lot of times by kind of, first of all, just getting, getting the balance of your, your mid-range in relation to that low end right. And also kind of using some EQ to enhance, you know, some of the harmonics of what's going on in the bass. Like a, a, a boost at like 600 to 800 hertz on in the right way can make it sound bassier, which is <laughs> like most people are like, wait, six hundred to eight hundred is like you know that's like boxy mid rangey. So yeah, it, I mean it's no, it makes sense. Like that's how you get it to stand out on small speakers. Like you have to have that upper harmonic range to to make it sound like it's there. And even on big speakers, I mean, you know, I've got 
big old PMCs here. Um, and and actually, when I first got them, they took me a while to get used to. So one of the things I, I don't I haven't proved this empirically, but my theory with this is that a lot of speakers, especially down low, have quite a bit of harmonics distortion. And so a lot of what we're used to perceiving as bass is some of those upper harmonics. The the drivers on these PMCs are the piston drivers, and they are like unbelievably clean and have so little harmonic distortion that at first when I got them, I was like, wait, with the low end, like these are massive speakers. They can move tons of air. Where's the low end? And then I start to like really listen. I'm like, oh yeah, it's there. If there's just not all this harmonic information. So now I know the stuff that I'm hearing in that kind of lower to mid-range area. That's really what's there. It's not something that the speakers are adding. But now when I EQ that area, I can really hear how that impacts very low end and like your your perception about it. So yeah, it's it's weird and counterintuitive, but bass isn't always about bass. I love that. <laughs> That's such a great <laughs> answer. It's a, it's a thing that like yeah, a lot of people don't think about and it, or it's just like yeah, a lot of people it's just like they they crank I don't know, like 100 hertz and below and just like now I have bass and it's like well no you don't. Like you have like sub stuff. You don't right. have any of the tone of the bass or any of the definition of it. Like, all of that stuff's way higher. And really, for me, I mean, like, in mastering, there's only so much of that that you can get away with, right? Because there is all this other stuff in the mid-range. So, like, that's where you have to be kind of super careful and and balance it with compression and and all this other stuff. Um, In mixing, though, like, absolutely, this is something I'll, you know, if if a client is kind of struggling with that and I can hear that like, okay, there's a, there's some of that there and I can do some of it with EQ, but it's also now it's making the vocal weird or, you know, the piano is getting to whatever, you know, I'll go back to them and say, Hey, look, let's, let's try a, a mix update, you know, on your actual bass instrument, try like it's just a gentle bell, you know, in this range, not to the point where it sounds obvious and boxy and weird, but you're going to hit this point where all of a sudden you start feeling like, very bottom of the bass feels more energetic. Um, and a lot of times that, that'll that kind of help get us there. But yeah, it's it's counterintuitive. It took me, again, ages to figure. I, I made that mistake, you know, when I was mixing and producing almost every time. And I listen to some of that stuff now. I'm like, yeah, I was trying way too hard and just cranking the low end. I just need some more harmonic support. <laughs> I love it, man. That's a great answer, and it's it it is very true, and it's a thing that people always forget about. And uh, yeah, yeah, maybe it's just because like they're used to, you know, a lot of people maybe they're just used to like having like a three band EQ to start. You know, they're used to their, like their car, that kind of the, that's their first experience with EQ, and maybe that's why they just always just reach for that that bass knob and turn that up. Right, you know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I love it. Well, I'm sure another part of your uh, bass tone that that has helped a lot is that recently you were also part of helping to develop a plugin for uh, tone projects called the Baseline Pro. So I'd yeah. love to talk a little bit about that as well and, and what your involvement was for that and how that all came about. Absolutely. Um, so Baseline Pro is a plugin that I've been wanting to have made for like uh, probably close to six years at this point. And so, so the, the, the core of it was based around some ideas that I came up with again, it was like six, seven years ago about monoing low end, right? Because there was like, I think it still gets talked about a lot, but there's definitely a, a period where that seemed to be all anyone on YouTube or, you know, the internet was talking about was how to mono your low end. Um, and there are a lot of 
wrong way. I'm, well, I don't want to say wrong, but non-optimal ways to do it. Um, right. Like part of the mindset for me is like in production, nothing is wrong, right? If you do it in production, you like the way it sounds and it, it's working for the mix. Great. But by the time you get to mixing and definitely by the time you get to mastering, there are some ways that you can treat low end and low end stereo width that are going to really screw with a lot of other stuff in, in not great ways. And most of the plugins that exist or existed certainly before baseline pro kind of did that. Um, and so I wrote this blog post that was kind of all about that and said, you know, Hey, I've got this way to do it that retains, you know, stereo separation, yada, yada, yada. Um, hopefully someday I'll turn it into a plugin. And so I, I, you know, kind of hit up a few plugin developers and, you know, they'd say, oh, yeah, that's not really for us. Or, oh, maybe someday, but, you know, we've got too many other projects right now or whatever. And um, I guess it was probably like a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, about that. I uh, became kind of aware of, of Tone Projects. Um, which is this plugin company from Denmark and hadn't really tried their stuff, but like they were just getting inc- like, you know, Bob Katz, legendary mastering engineer was like raving about their compressor. And okay, if, if their compressor is good enough for Bob Katz and he says it's the most analog sounding plugin compressor I've ever used or something along those lines, I don't want to misquote him, but paraphrasing like, that's good enough for me to check out. So I started checking it out. And so, so um, they had Unisum, which is the compressor, and Kelvin, which is like a harmonic tone shaper type thing. Um, at that point, I was like, you know, I re- like I like the the design aesthetic, the the UI, like, and and honestly, that's that's part of it, right? Like we, a lot of times you see plugins, and and the way they look is going to appeal to you, or it's not, and make you want to use it or not. Um, so I liked that. Obviously, the Sonics were there. I started playing around with it, and I was like, "All right, I need to see if I can get in touch with these people." I had no idea who, like, how big the company was, who it was. Um, I knew a mastering engineer who was I was friendly with from kind of online world had done some of the presets for Unisom and Kelvin. So I reached out to him. I was like, "Hey, Bob, different Bob." I have this theory that to be really good at mastering, you have to be named Bob. Um, <laughs> Bob Katz, Bob Ludwig, Bob Mack. This goes on. Definitely a trend. Um, anyways, so yeah, I reached out. I was like, hey, Bob, can you connect me with the the Tone Projects folks? Um, and, and Bob actually knew about uh, this, this plugin idea. Um, I had mentioned it to him before. He's like, you know, actually, Rune, who is like the lead developer and owner of Tone Projects, saw your blog or like what was, I think Rune heard me actually talking about low frequency mono stuff on Ian Shepard's podcast. I was like, ah, this guy has some interesting ideas that kind of align with mine. I want to talk to him. And I think saw that Bob was a mutual friend and reached out to Bob and said, Hey, can you introduce me to Ian? (laughs) And like, this was happening like almost at the exact same time. Um, So Bob just wrote us an email, put us both on it. It was like, Hey, here you guys, you, you both wanted to talk to each other. Here you go. Have fun. (laughs) Um, so it, it very much felt like it was just kind of meant to be, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, we started just kind of hashing out what we wanted the plugin to do at a high level, 
um, you know, I kind of started sharing with Rune some of my ideas around, yeah, how do you do that that low frequency image correction without screwing up phase and imaging around the cutoff frequency and all that stuff. And then we kind of talked about it a little bit like, okay, what would be some nice to haves? Like if we get that all working really well, what would be some nice to haves on top of that? And then it was about a year of development. And so, you know, Rune would send me a beta and I'd test it and I go, oh, this is working. This is great. This is a little bit weird. Can we try this? What if we did this thing here? Um, so I was very much, for me, it was uh, like a very, I was very conceptually involved, right? It was like, I, again, I took some C++ classes in college. I can look at code and kind of go, uh, I think I basically get what's going on here, but if I have to write from scratch, forget it. Um, so for me, it was, it was high level of like, okay, here's some engineering ideas. Like, like, you know, what if we use a floating gate here to do this or like, you know, use this type of smoothing here or whatever. And then Rune, genius that he is, would take my ideas and go make them happen. And usually he said, well, okay, maybe we'll do that in version two. And I go, okay, whatever. And then a week later, he'd send me a new beta that would have <laughs> it all baked in. I was like, dude, you're, you're too good. Um, so... Yeah, we and then we got got some beta testers involved, you know, once we had it kind of, you know, mostly baked, we thought, and um it's been really interesting to kind of be on the other side of of that process of of, you know, like the that development cycle and and interacting with users and seeing people, you know, one thing you you think seems totally obvious and this is clearly the way to use it, other someone someone else comes out and just totally abuses it in a way you've never <laughs> never would have thought of and it sounds amazing you're like wow that's so cool so um yeah it's 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 been a really cool process but um i guess if i back up basically it uh, baseline pro is a little bit hard to describe in like one or two sentences but basically it gives you it's like comprehensive image and dynamics control for your low end so it gives you ways to narrow or widen low frequencies. Um, one of the the big things, like the core idea that it started with for me, was that if you've got information that's purely in antiphase, so stuff that like when you hit mono just disappears entirely, a way to recover that without adversely affecting other things. Um, so there's a this mono recovery feature that allows you to to blend that back in. There are a few modes that it can work in depending on kind of where that signal's originating from or how you want to treat it. Um, and then we developed this stereo harmonic section um, that actually kind of gets back to that bass is not bass thing, right? Mm-hmm. So like by adding harmonics, you can enhance the low end. But then what we're doing is we're we're rather than just adding the harmonics and doing like time stuff, we're actually panning individual harmonics in different ways so that psychoacoustically your brain goes, the bass is wide, but it's only actually wide at those higher frequencies. The low end still stays nice and tight and to, you know, whatever width parameter you've set it to, because it can be anywhere between full stereo and full mono, right? It's not one or the other. Um, and then lastly, we ended up implementing, I say we, this was mostly Rune, was like, it'd be cool to have some dynamic stuff. Um, so there's a compressor slash expander that can work in multiple modes to either, you can either have it work on the, the stereo signal, in which case it's kind of like 
the low band of a multiband compressor, right? So it's kind of doing that low band gluey thing. Or you can have it just work on the side signal, at which point it's doing dynamic width control. Right? So if you compress the side signal, now any any stuff that's loud and out towards the edges gets compressed. It gets sent towards the center. But quieter stuff stays wide. Or if you set it to expand, you can make that dynamic stuff wider. So if you've got you know, some low drone that's kind of weird and ambient stereo and you just want to pull that in to, you know, 30% width, but then you've got some low-panned toms that, like, pan across and you want to leave those where they are, you can expand those so it still pushes them back out to their original position. Yeah. Uh, or or vice, vice versa, right? Yeah. So... It's it's definitely a super powerful plugin, and like I was saying to you before we started recording, like, I've been experimenting with, with it for the last week, and yeah, it's it's almost like there's, like, three or four different plugins in one thing. Like they all, there's like these different sections that can each do their own thing. And, you know, you'd have a purpose for them and but they're all together. And so because of that, like you can really, you can get a lot of control over the low end. It's not just like a one trick pony. It's like, there's, there's so many different ways you can use it. And so you just have to wrap your head around it. A lot of different things you can do with it. And wh- one of the things that like, you know, I- I've seen and right. Like, if if you've got haters, you're doing something right. That's kind of the way I look at it, right? <laughs> so, like, some of the criticism that we've seen is like, oh, this is just, you know, I could build this chain with other plugins that I already have or that I can get for free or whatever. And, A, that's not entirely true because nothing else out there really does that mono recovery the way we do. Um, but even if you don't care about that, the other elements a big part of it is how they all interact, right? And that's only happening because they're talking to each other within the plugin. They're all linked together. So doing that with different plugins, maybe you could get somewhere close, but it would, it would be hard and not time efficient, right? And that, that was one of the big focuses for us is like, how can we, you know, it's not, you look at the plugin, it doesn't have, it's got a lot of knobs, but not an insane amount, right? Like it's, it's, I've, to me, it feels pretty manageable. And yet with, you know, a fairly condensed control set, you can do a lot and you can do it pretty quickly once you kind of wrap your head around it, which admittedly probably takes some time because it's it's not like many other things out there. But um, yeah. but also, like, you don't have to use all of the different sections in it. That was one of the oh, things. No. That, like, yeah, right, like, exactly. Just because you see all the controls doesn't mean you have to. It's, so you just right. have to get used to that, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Sometimes you might just, like, one of the things a lot of people gravitated towards first was, like, oh, my God, I can make the bass wide. And here I am, like, this is a tool to narrow bass effectively. And they're like, stereo harmonics, yoink. It's funny, that was the exact same thought that I had when I first opened it up. I was like, oh, cool, like, this giant width nub in the middle, like, I guess that's the thing I should go to, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's... It's it's wild to see what again what people have gravitated towards with it, and it's I think it's giving us some ideas for you know updates in the future. And yeah, I love it. I mean, it makes sense that like this, like you know, like I said, your 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 masters have always had this like big low end. So to to create a plugin that gives you all of that control in the low end and to fully be able to utilize like all these different tools in one plugin is is great. Yeah. And so uh, right. 
it makes sense that you would have made that play. And, and yeah, you can you can see where I, I honestly wasn't even thinking about this when we were talking about like you know the low end stuff earlier. But you could see like a lot of that philosophy of for me of like low end dynamic control and base isn't just base and what like yeah, it's all kind of distilled in there uh, in baseline pro. Um, if Rune hears this, I, I've told him again and again how appreciative I am that you know we linked up and. Uh, it's it's really like I feel like I couldn't have gotten luckier with with finding the right person to develop is like we're just so like we had the right amount of friction I feel like where we needed it to like push ideas forward but then we're in alignment on like the core things that we wanted it to do and how we want it to sound so amazing yeah. that's awesome got, got super lucky there <laughs> right on. <laughs> Well, I do want to shift gears a little bit. I know that um, when when you and I were first talking through email about like various topics that we can cover in this episode, you you had mentioned a couple different topics that um, haven't really come up on the podcast before. And I thought, you know, you seem like you're someone who's very well thought out with all this stuff. And and so I thought, you know, let's dive into these a little bit. Yeah. And uh, and one of the things that immediately caught my attention was the the topic of sample rates and bit depths. And yeah, uh, I think that that's a really interesting one because even for people who aren't mastering. It's like this is one of the first decisions that you need to make when you're opening up a recording session, uh, and in any DAW, you need to decide what what sample rates you're going to be using and all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious to know, like, first off, do you have any preference for what people should be using and why? Let let let's separate it into sample rate and bit depth a little sure. bit. So okay. bit depth is is pretty easy. Um, yeah, record at 24 bit and a story, right? Like there, there's there's no bit no reason for people to be using 16 bit anymore, right? Hard drive space really isn't an issue. Um, computer speeds aren't really an issue. Most com- converters, actually, like your, you know, your your mic pre that go like whether you have an all-in-one interface or a mic pre that goes into a converter or whatever. Um, most converters actually, like their their own in- internal noise floor is higher than the noise floor of twenty-four bit. So, like, really, there's there, and some of that is limited by the physics of electronics. Like, it's called thermal noise, right? And it's just the noise of the heat in the components. It's kind of always going to be there. So really, there's no reason to need higher than 24-bit. And and to kind of like zoom back a little bit, the thing that bit depth ultimately, like to really distill it down, it's more complicated than this if you really dig into it, but to really distill it down, bit depth affects noise floor. That's basically it, right? So the higher your bit depth, the lower your noise floor. And roughly, you get a 6 dB increase for every additional bit. Theoretical noise floor of 16-bit is negative 96 dB. Theoretical noise floor of 24-bit is negative 144 decibels full scale. Most converters, if they can get down to negative 120, 125, that's doing really good. So again, 24-bit is great. So just record it, 24-bit. Once you get inside your DAW and you start mixing, everything's going to convert to floating point. So floating point's a bit weird, but basically it means that signals can get really quiet and not disappear into the noise floor. And you can also go over what would normally be clipping and at least internally, the signal won't clip. If it hits your output converter that hot, your output converter will clip, but internally in the DAW, the signal's still fine, doesn't get clipped. So most DAWs these days work at either 32-bit or maybe even 64-bit floating point, which again basically tells you what the noise floor of that floating point signal is, and then 
also how far up and down it can be scaled. So like basically you're you're taking the the base bit depth and and shifting it up and down and like almost like magnifying it, like either zooming in or zooming out. Um that's a very hand wavy way of explaining it, but <laughs> kind of gets the point across. So once you're in your DAW, you start mixing everything's at floating point. At that point, either export to 24-bit again and send that off to your mastering engineer. Or, again, these days, everything pretty much works at floating point. You can just leave it at 32 float. And that way, even if your output bus is clipping, that clipping's not going to get baked in. And the mastering engineer can just clip gain it down, and all your peaks are going to be retained, and nothing's going to clip. Now, if you're going out through an analog chain, or you know, uh, there are a lot of people that will still route out to a, another track in Pro Tools and print to it, then you got to start to be careful because if you're set to 24-bit in Pro Tools, it's going to record that file at 24-bit. So if it's clipping, it's going to get clipped. Gotcha. But if you're right. just sticking within the DAW, then you're, you're fine to keep, a thing, keep things as it is or export as is. Yeah, or, or I mean, you know, for a while there's like, and I think, I think I took it down for a while. I had a video on YouTube about like why changing all your individual fader levels isn't the same as changing your master fader. And technically that's true, but like the math has improved enough now, especially with 64-bit floating point. But like if, 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 you, if your master out is clipping, like, yeah, just pull the master. Don't like worry. Like if you've got automation, all this stuff going on, just pull the master fader down. Now that may mean that it, if you've got dynamic stuff going on on your two bus, it's going to affect that. So maybe you just put a game plug in after it and turn that whatever. Yeah. There are plenty of ways around that. But it's interesting because like the way you described it, the like I know in Pro Tools you can even switch, but you can even uh, select 32-bit floating point as as a, as an option. Um, right. So so it, the way you described it with the noise floor, it sounds like if it's floating point, it's better. And if it's a higher number, then you have less noise. So 64-bit floating point would be ideal for everyone to use. But but then you were like, oh, just use 24. So why why make that distinction? Right. Well, so so yeah. So so again, it comes down to that interface between the analog real world, let's say the real world and the world inside the computer, right? So any converter, either a ADC, an analog to digital converter, or a DAC, a digital to analog converter, is is going to speak fixed point, right? They they don't they can't convert floating point because there has to be some real world maximum which is driven by the voltage in the thing, right? It can only drive that voltage so high. So there's got to be a fixed real world maximum. So it's it's going to use twenty four bit. So recording for for recording in twenty four bit all the way. If you're recording analog sources in twenty four, yep. Once you go to export, 32-bit float is fine because now you're you're probably staying digital, right? So if you're doing an offline bounce or whatever, I would say most of the time 32-bit float is is fine. Um, if you're doing a, a capture back in, yeah, you just got to think about what what your where what bit depth you're set to record at. So if you recorded all your analog sources at 24 and then you don't change it, you just got to make sure okay that you're not clipping, right? If it's at 32 float, clipping doesn't exist. I mean, if you want to get technical, it does, but it's 1500 dB and change above zero. So, <laughs> like, you know, don't don't blow your ears up. Don't blow my ears up. Um, we're not trying to capture rocket shuttles or anything. So, um, 
Yeah, that's that's kind of you know, again, the, the the simplest way to think about it is is twenty four bit is is going to be your best bet when it comes to real world analog stuff. It seems like it has the most compatibility in and out. Right. Exactly. And and the thing there is that you just have to be there. You do have to watch out for clipping on on your output. Um, so if you're worried about that, or you know you, you notice, hey, my output is clipping. I'm not. I don't. I'm not really sure. Like I, I tried bringing my master channel down, but it's it's doing weird stuff with my two bus, or it just doesn't feel right. Then at that point, I would say, yeah, just do an export. Right. Don't try to capture and record it back in. Just do an offline bounce at 32 float and use that. Gotcha. Sample rate, little bit of a different beast. If we kind of distill it down in the same way that we did for bit depth, right? We said bit depth really kind of at its core, at its core is describing your noise floor, how far down that is. Sample rate is describing the highest frequency that you can capture. So technically it's describing bandwidth. Um, and there's something known as the sampling theorem or Nyquist theorem or the Shannon Nyquist theorem. You'll see it under different names, um, which basically says that the highest frequency that you can capture at a given sampling rate is half of that sampling rate. Let's just simplify the numbers a little bit, right? You probably often hear that humans can hear from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Okay, fine. If, uh, I haven't heard 20,000 hertz in quite a few years, but you know, nobody is. Whatever. Yeah. Infants, uh, you know. Um, So let's take that as a generous upper limit. And we'll say, okay, we need double that to to capture that. So that's 40,000 hertz. So great. We need to sample at 40,000 hertz. Well, there's a little more to it, right? And part of it is that if you try and capture stuff above half that rate, at a at a given sampling rate, so say you were sampling at forty thousand hertz, and you tried to capture twenty two thousand hertz, the way the math works out, and a computer would view that is actually eighteen thousand hertz. So mathematically, it starts to mirror around that halfway point, and that's what people will a lot of times people just say, "Oh, Nyquist." Someone just refers to Nyquist, they mean that halfway point, so half the sampling frequency. So, right, you go 20,000 hertz, if that's your midway point, you go 2,000 above it to 22, well, actually, that looks like 2,000 below it, 18. And the higher you go, the lower it sounds, and that's what we call aliasing. Um, So, you got to prevent that, right? So, you have to now actually filter out any frequencies that are going to be above that halfway point and make sure that they don't get into the conversion to begin with. Okay, so you have to have a really steep low-pass filter. Okay, so we want to be able to capture 20,000 hertz. We got to filter stuff out before it gets in. We got to design a steep filter. We need a few thousand extra hertz to do that. So let's bump up to 22,050. Okay, we double that. We get to 44,100. So that's that's where that 44.1 kilohertz sampling rate comes from is we can capture 20,000 and then we've got a little bit of room to put in a really steep filter and get rid of anything before it gets captured. But filters have a sound. They have phase shift um, or they can be linear phase these days when when this technology all got started, you know, digital sampling technology got started, we, there wasn't the computer power to do linear phase. So um, 
by increasing your sample rate, A, you can capture higher frequencies that your dog can hear. Um, but B, you're able to shift the phase and frequency response of that filter up higher, or you can use a more, like it, it still start its cutoff at 20,000 hertz, but it could just be a gentler filter, all sorts of stuff. And once you get into the recording and mixing world in in digital land, right? Any what we'll call nonlinear process. So a nonlinear. So examples of linear processes: EQ, gain. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> I mean, there's there's some other I, reverbs. Not really linear. It, it can be either linear or nonlinear. Um, Right, but linear just means that the if you change the input, the output changes in the same way. Like so, they they scale equivalently. Nonlinear processes are things like distortion, compression, limiting, saturation, whatever. Right, where the output is dependent on the input. So once the input goes over a certain level, all of a sudden the output's going to scale differently. Um, so any nonlinear processes in digital have this habit of creating additional harmonic content. That's just kind of part of what a nonlinear process is. So now, all of a sudden, you're introducing frequencies that weren't there. So by working at higher sampling rates, you can allow room for those without either having to filter them to prevent them from aliasing or not doing that, and all of a sudden, you've got aliasing in your mix. So there are some, some benefits to recording and mixing, especially if you're going to be in the box, at higher sample rates. Um, there are downsides too, though. It eats up more CPU usage. Um, and actually, there's a lot of evidence that once you get to really high sample re- rates, um, even like the really high-end uh, digital-to-analog converters can't really do it very well. And you start getting some intermodulation distortion and other weird stuff that even though you're talking about frequencies that are way higher than we can hear and probably even our dogs can hear, it creates stuff that ends up down in the audible frequency range. And so people might say, oh, I can hear the difference between, you know, 96K and 192K. Well, Yeah, but it's not to do with anything that's up super high. It's because it's creating these other artifacts that are actually down in the audible band. It's kind of like what you were talking about with bass isn't always about bass. Exactly. These high frequencies aren't always about high frequencies. Exactly. Right. Some of that intermodulation distortion and other weird stuff could be very much down in the, you know, squarely in the mid range. Um, So, yes, higher frequency rates, higher sampling rates can be beneficial. Um, not for the reason that, you know, like you'll, a lot of audiophile circles will say like, oh, you know, you're, you can, even if you can't hear it with your ears, your body can sense it somehow. I, <laughs> I, I don't subscribe to that personally. Um, but there, there are real benefits to it and, and there are ways around it, right? So you can record. So I would say, I mean, these days, again, space isn't an issue. Recording at least at 48K gives you, it it allows that filter response to be a little more gentle and and generous, um, and so even if you don't have a super high end converter, chances are the filter design is going to be such that it's probably going to sound a little more kind of neutral and open in the top end. So I think there's a real benefit of of going to forty eight k. If your computer can handle it, 
Sure, go up to 88.2 or 96. Personally, once you get over that, I think you're really seeing diminishing returns. And unless you've got a super high-end DAC, there's a good chance that, yeah, you're going to be hearing some weird other artifacts associated with trying to sample that fast and and recreate that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm you know, you send me something that, I have one client that pretty much everything I get is 1644. We've had the discussion. That's what he wants to do. That's his workflow. All right, fine. I'll make yeah. it sound good. But it sounds like your recommendation is 2448. Yeah, or 96 or 441, yeah. you know. Yeah. But but yeah, I think 24-bit 48 to 96, depending on on what your computer can do, how many tracks you're working with. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because like when I was originally taught about this stuff, I remember, I think he was even like a, a professor in college or something like that, that, that said basically 44.1 is used for music, 48 is used for broadcasts. And like, you know, stick to 44.1. And I guess there was some truth to that for, for a long time, right? But like and like you said, the technology is getting better and better. So, Right, exactly. I, well, yeah, I mean, CD is 44.1, right? So to go to a CD, you had to be 16-bit 44.1. That's part of the spec. Um, and for a long time, that was part of mastering. So even if stuff was recorded at higher bit depths and higher sample rates, part of the mastering engineer's job was getting it into 16 bits and 44 one and sounding hopefully close to as good as it did at you know the higher bit depth and higher rate um but yeah i mean now you know we see the the world moving to dante a lot right there's there's a lot of dante technology dante is 48k like as far as i know i'm not a complete expert there i don't have don't really necessitate it in a in a kind of mastering workflow but in bigger studio environments where, you know, you're trying to link all these rooms, you can do that over Cat 6 now rather than, you know, these huge, thick snakes. Great. Um, you know, or the the live world, certainly, you know, it's not uncommon to see digital stage boxes and stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the broadcast world is still 48K, right? And there's some historical context of 48K and and 24 frames per second, and somehow there's things are divisible. I, you know, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. But, um, but yeah, these days again, the technology is getting really good. Uh, sample rate conversion, you know, that used to be a hard thing to get right. These days, there's look, there's still lots of ways to get it wrong, and and applications that don't do it well. But there are also some ones that are cheap or free that do it excellently. So. Yeah. So within all, all of that said, then, when it comes to people bouncing out their tracks, should people be upsampling or downsampling? Does that matter? Uh, so I always say bounce it out at whatever rate you recorded and mixed at. So if you're going to, if you decide, you know, I'm going to record at 2448 or 2496, send it to me or whoever your mastering engineer is um, at that format, right? Because one of the things that may happen, um, you know, look, if, if you've done all your stuff, you're probably doing it all at the same bit depth and sample rate. So that makes my life easy. Everything's the same coming in. And then I can give you a nice high-res master that can go on Amazon HD or Tidal or Apple and be played back at full high-res lossless. Great. Um, but it's also not uncommon on, you know, bigger album projects that maybe a few mix engineers have been involved and maybe stuff is, you know, I've got, three songs at 48 and, you know, two at 96 and one at 88 too. And in that case, 
I would still rather get them at the native rate, and then I'm going to resample them to basically the highest common rate. So in that case, 96. I'll upsample everything to 96, but let me do it. I'll, you know, I can get into... Rx has a sample rate, uh, Isotope Rx has a sample rate converter that like you can get super tweaky with and adjust filter offset and shape and yada, yada, yada. So if I need to, I can play with that and try and find the way that it's going to translate best. So yeah, I always just say, you know, because here's the thing, if, if you sample rate convert it, now you've got to listen to it and you got to try and listen to it before you sample rate converted it, and so you got to switch sample rates, and does it sound the same, and are you happy with that? Again, chances are sample rate conversion technology is really good, and it's probably not going to be an issue, but just send me what you've been listening yeah, to, yeah. right? Well, that makes sense, and I think that that makes sense, especially if you're sending it to a mastering engineer who, you know, that, like you said, that, that's kind of a big part of the process, process for mastering engineers, and like they understand this stuff a lot better than most Mixing engineers do. Right. But then, but yet there's still a lot of people, especially in the home studio market, who aren't going to be sending their tracks to a mastering engineer and they're just kind of bouncing it out of their, their mix sessions and that's and that's that. So in that case there, I guess you kind of have to downsample if you were using something really high, right? Yeah, and this is this is where the current state of the streaming world is a little tricky and frustrating. Um so kind of as I alluded to, right? You've got Apple, Apple has full lossless support, including high-res, right? That's included at the same price as their base tier. You've got Tidal. Tidal has a few different tiers, but they've got, you know, their Hi-Fi tier. You've got Amazon Music HD. You've got Deezer. You've got Cobuzz, whatever. All of those pretty much, I think, can take high-res files. Maybe Deezer is only 1644. Not sure. Anyway, then you have Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> which is arguably still the platform with the biggest user base. Uh, and they want everything to be, first of all, their streams still aren't lossless, right? It's all lossy encoded. But they want everything incoming to be 1644. And so if you send them something higher than that, they're going to reduce the bit depth and they're going to reduce the sample rate. And maybe they do that in a way that sounds good and maybe they don't. And for me, I would rather know what they're getting and know that I like the way it sounds than leave it up to them. So, unfortunately, these days, my recommendation is if, if a client's going to send one, they're going to use uh, CD Baby or TuneCore or DistroKid or whatever, and they're going to send one master out to go onto all the streaming platforms, which is, let's be honest, the most cost-efficient way to do it. I think most of those companies even just ask for one file to begin with. Right, right. right. Well, so, yeah, and most of them, if if you want to use different files for different platforms, those have to be different submissions. You have to go through and do a fresh submission for each one and pay for each one and specify, oh, this one only goes to Apple and this one only goes to Spotify and this one, right? And it's just like, who wants to manage that and pay for that and whatever? So if you're doing one set of files or one file, a single... For all the streaming companies, 1644, unfortunately, if you care about Spotify, is still kind of what you got to drive towards. Uh, <laughs> will that change? I, I don't know. You know, we saw, God, it's, I think it's almost it's at least a year ago. I think it might be close to two that Spotify said, oh, we're going to have Spotify Hi-Fi or whatever they're going to call it. And yeah. 
it just kind of died on the vine. Like there's just been nothing said about it. And I think they realized that they would have to convert their whole library and change a lot of the back end of the streaming, you know, software. Um, and that all the other companies are basically doing it for free. I mean, part of Apple's thing. So the, you know, for a while it was called, uh, mastered for iTunes. And then it was, uh, Apple Digital Masters, which technically is a program that still exists. The part of that was that Apple wanted high-res lossless files. And for a long time, they would get converted to, you know, AAC, Apple's lossy streaming format. But they had all those high-res files, so they had been, they've been collecting them for years. Um, and I think probably Spotify realized, wow, all these other companies are including them at their base rate. And that's going to cost us a whole bunch of money to do this. Not that they don't have enough money to do it, but <laughs> we don't need to get too political. Um, and, you know, is anyone actually going to pay more for this? So, yeah, do people even care? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. But, but, but maybe eventually that gets back to kind of the point that I made much earlier, which is if someone's happy to listen to Spotify and listen to a lossless stream, they don't really care that much about you know, what the, that lossy stream is doing to high frequencies. And if Spotify has done some sample rate conversion, maybe that's not the most important thing to them. And for the people that do really care about, you know, high res lossless quality, they're going to go to the Apple music or title or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. It's like, it's kind of like the, the boutique streaming service for those people that have that boutique hi-fi Interest, you know, so right, uh, yeah, right. makes sense. Um, and I, I think we'd be maybe doing a disservice if we didn't quickly talk about dither because you know, if people are having to downsample stuff, dither is a thing that I think a lot of people don't know about or don't know. Maybe they've heard the word, they don't know anything about it, or maybe they've just completely ignored it and they're just hitting, you know, downsample, <laughs> you know, six, right. change it to 16 bits. So, what is dither and why is it important in the, in the process of uh, converting your files? Sure. So, uh, again, high-level kind of... Well, it's not even that hand-wavy. That's true. Dither is noise. That That's, like, at its core, that's all dither is. Dither is very, very, very quiet noise that you add to a signal. And basically what it does is, is when, a, when a digital signal gets really quiet, right, you've got, you've got your bit depth, which describes your, your noise floor and, and kind of how accurately you can describe the amplitude of a signal, right? So the more bits you have, the more kind of fine-grained steps you you can ascribe a... a like a better resolution, basically. Better res- Right, better, like, ver- let's say vertical resolution, right? Loudness resolution, amplitude resolution. So when you get really quiet, at some point, your your quietest signal goes from being on to off, and it just switches on and off and on and off and on and off. And if you've got a repeating signal that's doing that, all of a sudden it starts. It creates a type of distortion. It's called quantization distortion, right? Because now rather than being this waveform, it's just kind of pulsing on and off, and it creates these weird. They're not even. It's inharmonic distortion. It's it's not just harmonics, but it's kind of a mathematical relation between the frequency of, of the signal and the sampling frequency. And, and so you get these, these, this weird kind of distortion that happens with very quiet signals. 
by adding a teeny bit of noise. Noise is inherently random. And so you add a little ran- randomness, and now it pushes some of those samples above and some of them below. And all of a sudden, you can retain a signal that before would have turned into distortion. And actually, earlier I said the theoretical noise floor of 16-bit is 96, negative 96 dBFS. With Dither, you can actually get below that. And you can retain signals that would be below that theoretical noise floor by adding some Dither. So, So Dither is just noise that you add to the signal to prevent distortion at very, very low volumes. And so, basically, dither is like one of the last things that you'll do. And you, it should be done anytime you reduce the bit depth of a file. Right? So, you record in at 24-bit. And actually, part of any analog-to-digital converter, it has built-in dither. Like, there's going to be a dither circuit in there to prevent quantization distortion in the recording. Okay? So, you record in at 24-bit. It automatically gets dithered. You don't have to think about that. Now you start mixing, um, it goes up to floating point internally, 32 or 64 float. Okay, great. You export that to send to a mastering engineer or to work on at 32 float, don't worry about it. You want to go down to 24-bit, technically you should use dither. Now, 24-bit has such good resolution and the noise floor is so low that some people argue whether it's really noticeable. for me, it's technically the right way to do it. And the dither noise is going to be so quiet that you're definitely not going to hear it. But you might hear the distortion products if you don't dither, right? Because like tonal stuff tends to be much more audible than kind of flat noise. So for 24-bit, um, one of the things people might have seen is like noise shaping, right? You might have a dither selection that might say like triangular, rectangular, power one, whatever, right? That's what's called noise shaping. And noise shaping is basically just applying an EQ curve to that dither noise. Really all it is. And what most of them try to do is attenuate the the part of the noise that's in that like mid-range that we're more sensitive to as humans, right? So the kind of like 2K, 3K range and turn it up a little bit at the super high frequencies. So up near 20 kilohertz where... You know, most of us can't hear anymore and down really low where it's we're just less sensitive to those frequencies. So for 24-bit, you kind of don't need to worry about noise shaping. You can just use triangular. Um, TPDF, you might see it. That's, that's fine. Once you get down to 16-bit, then noise shaping becomes a little bit more important. And you might want to try some different ones and you, you might get slightly different tonal characters out of them. Um, and mostly where you're going to notice this is in like reverb tails and quiet sections and fade outs, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, in a nutshell, that's dither. Quiet yeah. noise, sometimes with EQ applied to it. So I just want to clarify it. So you were saying if you, if you record a 24-bit because the converters, they already apply some dither to your signal. But did you say that, you know, these programs are often converting things, even though you recorded a 24-bit, they're often utilizing like 32-bit float. So even when you go to export, you should still have dither even then? Or is it only if you've converted up to 32 for like some sort of export? So so if you literally record in at 24-bit and do absolutely nothing, by which I mean including touching gain, you just do nothing, then yeah. that, I mean, at that point, you don't even yeah, need, you need to export, to. right? That file lives somewhere on your computer. Yes. 
there's your file at 24-bit. The second you do anything in a DAW, I mean, you change the gain 0.001 dB, it goes to floating point. Because part of the thing is to, to do gain calculations that small, you, you can't really do them at fixed bit, or, or at least you can't do them at 24-bit. You, you, you at least, like, so Pro Tools, going back, dating myself a bit, um, Pro Tools used to have a 56-bit internal mix engine. It was fixed point, but it was 56 bits internally. And so that gave it room to shift that 24-bit word up and down and do gain adjustments and some things and not have weird stuff happen. These days, pretty much, yeah, even Pro Tools at this point, everyone's using floating, floating point. So literally the second you do anything, it gets converted to floating point. And so, yeah, now technically, because what's happening is you're changing the gain and then you're mixing two signals together and they're at floating point, at least two signals, right? A guitar and a vocal, if you're just doing like a singer-songwriter type demo or something like that. Or you're mixing 140 things together. And, and so now this is this new signal and it's at 32 float. So yeah, when you go down to 24-bit, it has to squeeze this signal into a 24-bit word, which means there's going to be some stuff that's happening. It's called the LSB, least significant bit. There's Mm -hmm. going to be some stuff happening down at that very last bit that, yeah, again, it's it's probably unlikely at 24-bit, but you could notice that distortion, again, in a a fade-out or a a reverb tail or something like that. So when you go to 24-bit, adding that, TPDF or triangular, just flat dither, is gonna is gonna prevent that. And one thing to point out, actually, a lot of people say that dither masks quantization distortion. Wrong. It actually removes it, which is like kind of seems magical and crazy, but right? Because like we're so familiar with the idea of masking these days, right? Like you see it in some of the isotope plugins, masking meters and whatever. Um. So you think like, okay, you put noise in and it covers it up at Masco somehow, but it's not. It's like it's actually removing it. By adding that little bit of randomness, it just removes that distortion, which is I, don't hmm. know, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Ner- nerdy cool, but <laughs> <laughs> but also just to clarify too, so you know, we, we talked about how yeah, as soon as you do anything in your DAW, it is changing it. And I even remember seeing that the first time I used WaveLab, it had the uh the, the bit meter and you can immediately just see it like all of a sudden changes to like 64 bit um right and uh so but if someone's sending you a file as a mastering engineer you prefer that they don't have that dither right well so if if they're going if so first of all if they're sending me a fixed point file i would say please send me 24 bit at which point yeah just add the 24 bit the the gotcha. add the dither tpdf yeah. triangular dither that's it's like it it's so low in level that you're not it's more that you're going to get rid of any distortion that might have been there than hear a difference of the actual dither noise. Gotcha. If you're sending me 16-bit, I'm going to question you a little bit on why you're doing <laughs> that. And if you're my one client that does it, and we've had that discussion, and that's just the way you work, then fine. I'm not going to fight you on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're going to 16-bit, for whatever reason, that's your thing. Ideally, then at that point, you want to be at least listening to the dither that you're adding and making sure that you're happy with that. Yeah. And it's worth saying there are like, there's, there's actually plugin for another plug, plug for another plugin. Um, there's a plugin called good dither made by good Hertz, which is like, it's like 20 bucks. 
and it's good dither. It sounds <clears throat> very clean, very neutral. And the nice thing is you can put it as an insert, a plug-in insert, and now you're working through it. So you're hearing it all the time. It's not something that you then have to turn on at export, right? So you just know that you're you're working through that sound and yeah. your mix already factors it in. I guess that's something that like a lot of people would be like, wait a minute, I'm adding this like noise at the end of the file, like when I'm bouncing it, like it, it right. almost sounds scary, feels, right? Like you're, feels you're totally counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. kind of like going back on all the polish that you had been working on before. Right. You know. <laughs> but again, this noise is, it's so quiet. It's like, it's much quieter than tape hiss was back in the old days, right? And it's actually preventing distortion from cropping up that might be more noticeable. Yeah. yeah. It's a good, good digital tape hiss. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Maybe now is a, maybe now is probably a good time to start to wrap up. But uh, if people want to learn more about you, potentially even work with you, what's the best way for them to reach out or, or follow you online? Yeah, so I'm I'm on you know some of the kind of typical socials, uh, Ian Stewart Music on uh, like Instagram, and I have a Facebook page that I really never use anymore. I think on I think I Stewart eighty five is like my short handle on on Facebook. Um, I do help moderate the Mastering Engineers Worldwide Facebook group, so that's like one of the few places on Facebook I do kind of hang out, um, so you could come find me there. But really, my website is is pretty much the best. You can email me through it. You can fill out an intake form. Um, you can, you know, read some of my articles. You can whatever. So that's flowtownmastering.com, F-L-O-T-O-W-N, sort of like Motown, but not. Um, and uh yeah awesome cool well, i'll definitely have links to that in the show notes too so people Sweet. have access to that right on man well ian thank you again for for doing this and uh i think that yeah you gave us a lot of insight into some stuff that we haven't talked about before and um some fresh perspective on things that we have as well so awesome. uh, man I, I really appreciate it i appreciate you having me on so that was my interview with ian stewart and i really enjoyed that i thought he brought up some really interesting topics and some really great points that we need to always consider. And one of which that I really, really liked was when he was saying that bass isn't always about the bass. And that is so true. And it's something that so many of us kind of forget about. We we tend to compartmentalize various frequency ranges and think that certain sounds only exist within those. But, you know, as Ian was talking about here, when we start to introduce some harmonic content into our mixes, it becomes that 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 range starts to expand. And, you know, Bass isn't always about the bass, or the high end isn't always about the high end, and all that kind of stuff, too. So, if you're the type of person that has always thought that bass is only a specific frequency range, then I think this conversation should definitely have opened your eyes up to some new ways of thinking. I also really enjoy talking about things like sample rate and bit depth. I know that for some people, that might just be a super nerdy conversation, but it's a really important thing, especially because it's one of the very first things that you do when you open up a session within your DAW. So, you really need to understand why you're selecting certain settings and be intentional about it so that you're getting the quality of sound that you want. So, you know, as someone who has always worked in 44.1 myself, Ian's definitely given me some things to think about. And I might move up to 48 now. You know, I think all of the points he brought up there are really valid and make sense, especially with today's technology and the way things have advanced. You know, it does make sense to, to use some higher sample rates if you're not already. And obviously, if you've got the computer power, even more reason to do it because 
you know, your computer is just going to work with you to get the best quality sound. So yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was a lot of fun and very informative. And I hope that you enjoyed that as well. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from your home studio. And if you're feeling stuck with your audio, if you're not sure what you need to do to get your track sounding even better and more pro and get them sounding as good as your favorite recordings, there's a lot of great resources on the website there to help you out. And one of which that I want to point you to is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I wrote a few years ago where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you what to listen for, what steps to take, what tools to be using, And it really takes the guesswork out of the process so that you can just really focus on making your music sound good and getting your ideas to come out of your head and out of your speakers. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.